Hi everyone, I'm Stephan Abrams, your host of the Jackson Hole Connection. Today's guest is the fantastic, brave, and fascinating Cedar Rose Davis. Cedar will share her story today of what inspires and motivates her through different cycles of life. Cedar learned to play guitar as an adult, knew only a few songs, and was brave enough to begin performing with her husband Aaron as the band Screen Door Porch. Together, they traveled to get to know America better. During a brief pause as a traveling musician, Cedar faced fears and ran for office in the community she calls home, Jackson Hole. Cedar learned a few lessons along the way, which she will share with us, one of which was to get out and meet her community. So please join me in welcoming Cedar Rose Davis to episode number 37. Before I begin, I have a quick word from one of my sponsors. Jackson Hole Marketplace, the small shop with a huge personality. Located at 4115 South Highway 89, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Or you can visit us online at jacksonholemarketplace.com. Jackson Hole Marketplace is the best little corner store not on a corner. Stop in for fresh hot breakfast and lunch made daily. Or if you're in a super hurry, there's plenty of other fast to grab and go items. Fuel the kid or a kid inside of you with ice cream, candy, snacks, and beverages. Like to enjoy the adult side of life? We have a fully stocked bottle shop with wines from around the globe, spirits to treat every taste bud, and really cold beer. We love treating our customers like family. So stop in and visit the team at Jackson Hole Marketplace. Cedar, welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. Thank you for coming and sitting down and visiting with me today. Well, hello. It's my pleasure to be here today. So, Cedar, how long have you been living in Jackson Hole? About 15 years. All right. And what connected you to this place? I moved here originally um, in the summer of 2002 with some friends from high school that were coming out to work a job. Um, they had a brother that lived here, and I pretty much just piggybacked on their trip. And I had never been to Wyoming. I'd definitely never been, you know, this far west from the south originally. So this idea was really adventurous to me, and I came out and I fell in love with Jackson. So. That winter, I came back for a couple of weeks to see if I could handle the winter here because I knew I wanted to move back, but I wasn't sure about making it through a winter. But as soon as I graduated college, I came right back. And I've had a few stints in other places. I've gone to Austin for a couple of winters um, because, like I said, I'm from the South. So winter, it can be a little heavy on me sometimes. And every once in a while, I have to get out for a couple months. But yeah, been here 15 years. And during that 15-year period, like you said, you're from the South. Roll Tide. Go Tigers. <laughs> and tell people what Tiger you are. Ah, well, I am a proud alum of Clemson University. Go Tigers. Stefan and I love <laughs> to trash talk each other a little bit. This year is my year because Stefan is a huge Alabama fan. Roll Tide. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a graduate of the University of Alabama. But we can still be friends, and we're proving yes, that. Yes, absolutely. You and April Hankey. That's right. Yeah. I love being able to banter back and forth about college football with you guys. And you mentioned that you fell in love with the Valley, but you were insightful enough to test out the winter. What about winter do you feel is is so over, can be so overwhelming it's so long <laughs> right in the south it's like we have winter but 
I mean, it's just this like couple of months. You come here and I mean, take, for example, May 1st here, you know, it was snowing. So and that's not unlikely. I mean, it can be snowing anytime. So it's just um, coming to terms with the realization that it's going to be cold and brutal for a lot of it. And you got to figure out how you're going to get outside. And I I was a skier at the time, but not like every day, go all day, ride or die. So I had to kind of figure out where I fit into that winter model. Okay. And you fell in love with the valley. What were some characteristics of this valley that attracted your love? A lot of it was the landscape. I loved just being in the mountains. Um, I was born in Western North Carolina, so the mountains are kind of, you know, part of my heart. And these were totally different mountains. And I loved like just this vast expanse of, you know, areas where there weren't a lot of people where you could really get away and think for yourself and um, explore. But I also really loved the vibe of not just Jackson, but Wyoming. And I loved the people here. Like I thought they were all really gritty and really determined. And that's something that I think of myself as being or I try to be in my life. And so I really felt a kindred spirit to a lot of these people here. And that's continued to drive me and, and keep me here. It's it's one of those things where like I came for the mountains, but I stayed because of the people and the friendships that I made here. And in that 15 year window since you've been here, mm-hmm. you've accomplished a lot of different aspects of moving through life. You've made a, lo- a lot of accomplishments. And when we were talking earlier, the vibe of people, the grittiness, the determination, Share with us what your grit and determination is versus somebody who might be um, a professional skier or professional rock climber. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we all have this idea of like the really athletic go get them person in Jackson. I'm not that. (laughs) I try to be. um, I'm a terrible athlete, but I think it's always this idea that we need to be that way or those are the people that we look up to they're so they're brave they're really getting after it they're taking risk but I've definitely learned over the years that while I may be afraid to go climb a crazy mountain um, huck a cliff uh, mountain bike in certain areas I'm not afraid to take risk in other ways and I think that those non-traditional ways of maybe taking risk to me a lot of times don't seem that risky or that scary, but it isn't until like now that I look back at them that people say, wow, how would you have, why did you ever think that you wanted to be a touring musician? Or why would you ever run for office? That seems insane and scary, but those things didn't seem that way to me. It just felt like at the time, a natural progression. And you mentioned being a touring musician you and now your husband mm-hmm. um, have a band, or it's on pause right now, Screen Door Porch. Right. And you guys became touring musicians. What is the draw to that? Tell me, what was your your passion to say, let's go give this a try? Mm-hmm. Um, it happened very accidentally, and I think some of the best things in life happen that way. I have always been um, a 
super music lover. I've always gone to a lot of shows. I was a singer when I was a lot younger and and I loved that. And if you had asked me when I was like seven years old what I wanted to be, I would have said the third Judd because that was my favorite group. (laughs) And that was no lie. That was my first concert and I saw them a lot and I really loved them. But, you know, music had kind of gone out of my life. And when I moved to Jackson, super on a whim, I think we, some friends of mine were at Happy Hour at the Cadillac back in the day. And we were talking about um, music and wanting to form this girl group. And so we all decided what we were going to play. And I think that (laughs) it was pretty funny because I think everybody kind of thought of it as like a joke or whatever, but I took it seriously. So I was supposed to be the guitarist in this group. So I asked my friend, well, who do you know that plays guitar that can give me guitar lessons? And it was something that I had always wanted to learn in life. And my friend said, oh, you should talk to Aaron Davis. And at the time he was in a band, Global Review. And I said, oh yeah, okay, I think I know him. So I'll talk to him. And I saw him at an event like the next week and I asked him, hey, do you give guitar lessons? And he kind of looked at me really skeptically and he was like, you have to be serious to want to take lessons. And I thought it was so funny. I was like, my friend has a guitar. She's going to let me borrow it. I'm I'm super serious. So then I started taking lessons. And I think part of it was the way he was sort of skeptical. It made me want to prove, well, yeah, I'm going to do this. And so what happened was I started taking lessons. My friends all bailed on me that were supposed to be in this girl group with me. We were going to go learn three songs and go to open mic at Joe's Garage at the time. So they all bailed and I decided, well, I guess maybe I'll just do this because what am I learning this for if I'm not gonna like try and and get out there? And so then I started singing again and that's what happened. I went to open mic. I, I kind of remember this like it was yesterday because I thought I was going to throw up on stage It was the scariest moment that I can remember. (laughs) And I played three songs. They were probably terrible. But I just remember at the end of it going, oh, yeah, that was pretty amazing. That was really fun. And then after that, Aaron asked me if I wanted to sing with him at some gigs that he had lined up, some solo gigs. And I realized that, you know, he was getting paid for those gigs. So he wouldn't ask me to come and sing if he didn't think I had something. And then from there, like, we started playing gigs. I think the first gig we played, I could play two songs on the guitar. And then all of a sudden, we were just all in. So it went from, like, zero to 100 in a matter of months. But that's sort of how I am with things. Like, if I find something that I love, I am all in. I'm going to give it everything, and I'm going to try and take it as far as I can. Kudos to you for getting up there for that open mic night. I mean, <laughs> you you saw the fear, but you didn't back down. No. You kicked it in the pants. And I did not throw up. <laughs> and you did not throw up, yes. But you kicked fear in the pants and said, get out of here. Yeah. I'm tackling. I'm getting you out of my way, and I'm going to do this. And then next thing you know, you're performing with Aaron, and you guys are cutting some albums. How many albums does Screen Door Porch Screen- have? We have four albums. Okay. And yeah, so we were on the road almost immediately. We By then how many <sighs> songs could you play in the guitar? Oh, the first tour that we took was in the fall of two thousand and six. 
that was the first year I've been playing guitar. I could I could play three songs, I think, by the time we went on tour. <laughs> one of those was Wagon Wheel, which no one should be allowed to play at a gig anymore. But I, I would say I definitely got better over the years. <laughs> and at least I hope I did. And then Screen Door Porch as a unit, I think then we were still calling ourselves Aaron Davis and Cedar Rose. Um, I think Screen Door Porch really came into play a few years later and when our first album came out in 2010 and we were really taking ourselves more seriously and realizing what we wanted to do with that music. Um, And we, from the very beginning, we were really dedicated to playing original music. So our sets were always about 80% original music. And in the Valley, that was tough at the time. There were a lot of cover bands and that's what a lot of people wanted to hear. And we, that's just not what we wanted to do. And we wanted to travel and we wanted to play in these different areas because I thought it would be like such a great way to get to know our America better and see some of the people that we love and have them come enjoy our music. And it really was such an incredible experience. And we, those shows that we, you know, got to play and some of the people that we got to play on stage with and share stages with and open for it was pretty amazing and how many states did you and Aaron tour visit let's see we we played the last three or four years of screen door porch we really stuck to the rockies um but we played the northwest we played the southeast we played in texas a lot that's where we cut our first two albums was in austin um and we were living there at the time and so we've kind of been all over the place, Midwest, on the way and back from Southeast and here. And why the name Screen Door Porch? It comes from an Uncle Tupelo song uh, called Screen Door. And at the time, um, our favorite bands, a lot of our favorite bands at the, t- at the time, and actually still, were Uncle tu- Tupelo, um, Wilco, Sunbolt, um, which were the segments of those bands afterwards. Um, they were really pioneers of the alt-country movement back in the late 80s and early 90s. So Uncle Tupelo has a song called Screen Door, and in the chorus they say, you know, down here where we're at, you know, all we do is sit out on the porch and we play our songs and nothing's wrong. And that's kind of where we, what we thought about our music at the time. Like, we're going to play around with friends and have fun. And we were always able to do that, which is pretty great i feel really grateful for that hey i give it to you and and aaron for taking that big leap of faith and you gave it a go Mm -hmm. for being musicians and traveling musicians touring musicians and what made you guys put a pause on that i would say the hustle and the grind for me in particular um we're getting to a point where we were on the road a lot in Wyoming, also traveling from Jackson, it's not the easiest place to be a traveling musician from. So we've always dealt with that where sometimes you're driving eight hours to get to the next gig. And we were completely DIY and we've always held steadfast in that. Um, We really enjoyed being able to be in control of our own careers and our trajectory. But with that comes a lot of responsibility And, you know, we were doing the booking and the management and um, the promotion and then the tour management. And it wasn't leaving a lot of time for us to be completely creative. 
And I think that's really important when you're an artist is to make sure that you can balance out the work with the creativity. And that's something that every artist struggles with, I think, no matter what level you're at. So at some point, I just thought, like, I I need to put a pause on this. I also felt like there was something else that I needed in my life that this wasn't completely fulfilling. And not to say that music doesn't fulfill me, but it felt like maybe I wasn't doing enough in the world. And that probably sounds really, I don't know, cliche and privileged. (laughs) But I've always grown up, my family, like, I grew up from a super working class family, raised by a single mom. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and my grandfather in particular who fought in World War II. And he was just this really amazing, kindest person I've ever met one of the toughest people I've ever met because he's so good at overcoming obstacles. That's probably where I get some of that grit from. But he always was doing things for others. And so I kind of felt like I wasn't doing enough for others. Um, Now I look back and see that maybe my music was doing a lot, but I just felt like I needed a new chapter. You did some soul searching. (laughs) And I I don't think that it is cliche to say that you weren't, um, you needed to find something else to do to give back to the world. Um, I think that's admirable because some people get caught up into one thing and they don't take the time to recognize, is it time for a change? Mm-hmm. Um, but you did that soul searching and reflection, which I think we all can use at time to determine, um, are we on the right path? Right. But also to help reground ourselves. Yes. I, I think we should all be giving something back to society. I hope so. I, I want us all to, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you went from being a touring musician and you and Aaron came back to Jackson. And what did you do after the touring musician? <laughs> I, I took some time off and then I sort of, I got motivated to enter the political scene. And again, this theme that comes back to my life is if you're going to do it, you might as well do it at 100. Um, there's no other speed for me. So I decided to run for office. And <laughs> at the time, I think my family, I don't know that they were that surprised because I've always been interested in politics. But I do think that they were surprised that I was leaving one hustle for another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's that's me. That is just kind of how it goes. I don't do well resting. Now, why is running for office a big leap? Man, that's a really good question. Um, I think it wasn't a big leap for me. Okay. But the more I got into it, the more I realized why other people think it's such a big leap. Because I truly believe that anyone can run for office and that it's really good for your soul and your community to get to know a place. If you really want to get to know a place and how it works and the people that make it work, that is where you need to go at some point. But I understand now, you know, there's um, obviously it's it's really hard. It can be a complete grind. Um, My family was really nervous about, you know, what would people 
say? Would there be, you know, how dirty would it get? And I think that's where a lot of people go. Well, I don't want to run for office because, you know, they dig up things about you and people are really mean. And I wouldn't want to have people yell at me and tell me those things that they hate about what we're doing wrong. And I didn't find that to be my experience, but I know that's valid. That's completely valid. But um, I wasn't scared of that because I realized that to be a public servant, you have to be ready well, I think that. what happens on the national level doesn't necessarily happen on the local level. Absolutely. Yeah. But I have seen times where it's gotten a little dirty at the local level. Um, I tried to stay in my race. There was none of that. I stayed above the fray. I felt I had a lot of respect for everybody else that ran in in my race. Um, we were all, you know, really good with each other. We saw each other a, a lot because we were at a lot of the same events and forums. And I got to know all of them really well. And I have a ton of admiration for all those people, for anyone that runs for office. If, if there's one or two takeaways from running for office, what did you learn? The biggest thing I learned when running for office was to trust my gut and my instincts and to always be myself in my experience. Um, I think that really in any point in life with a lot of different jobs, but especially in politics, sometimes it's easy to get caught in the lane that you think you're supposed to be in and the things that you think you're supposed to say. But I think it's tremendously important to always be true to yourself first. And the second big lesson was, it's okay to lose. And that is really valuable in itself because I don't think of losing as being a failure. Now, if you'd asked me the night of, I would have said it differently. <laughs> um, but I think it's it's really important um, to go through moments like that and realize that the experience was still really valuable. And I don't regret at all putting myself in that position. I knew from the very beginning that, you know, losing was a a real possibility. But, you know, if you don't risk anything, you're not going to gain anything. That's right. We have at the liquor store something called an OPSP, One Page Strategic Plan. And we have our core beliefs. And one of our core beliefs is it's okay to fail. And we talk about it. And the reason I have that belief in there is I want people to understand that everything you do is not going to be a win or a success. Right. And to overcome that fear of, well, what happens if I fail or if I don't get this right? In, in my business, as long as we're not selling to a minor or to somebody who's <laughs> already drunk, we're everything else will be a success mm-hmm. to us. But we have to try things new for our business. And kudos for you for having the reflection back that it was okay to to fail. It was okay to lose. Mm-hmm. And do you think you'll run for office again? I don't know. I think I really want to help other people run. I've really been trying to encourage other people to get involved because I, I do think it's it's something I actually found it tremendously fun. And I think I realize I am a little bit crazy because there's not many people. <laughs> so my, my husband says it all the time. He's like, you're the only person I know who thinks campaigning is fun. Uh, I, that's why I knock so many doors. I thought that was I had such a good time doing it. I got to know this community way better 
in that one year of time running for office than the 14 years leading up to it. And so that's that says something in itself, you know, and I want other people to have the tools that they need to run. And I want people to not be afraid to say, well, I'm interested in this, but I have ABC concerns and I don't know how to navigate those things. Um, So if anybody is interested, I would love to talk to them and say, here's what you, you know, my perspective on it and what you need to take away from it. I I think you've hit two big points about life in general here that you talked about um, from running for office. One is being true to yourself. And the other one is you got out and knocked on all those doors. You met the community. And part of why I have this podcast is to get out and not only just meet the community, but share people's stories such as yourself, Mm -hmm. because you're brave. You've done so much that's brave that you have done set two things that I can identify that we've discussed today, being a touring musician and running for politics. Mm -hmm. If you look at the number of people in the US and the percentage of people who have done one or two of those things, it's very small. Mm-hmm. You're that one small percent, less than the 1% of the population in a different way yeah. than you hear in the news. But Oh, I'm certainly not in that 1%. Yeah. <laughs> and neither am I. But, um, but you did something that other people are not going to try to do every day. Mm-hmm. And I, I applaud you for that. That's so brave of you and Aaron for the music and then for you running for office. Well, thank you. I think it's always good to kind of reflect back because I just don't, it's hard for me to see myself that way as this brave person. I mean, I'm this little five foot two, small, petite, like, you know, I'm grateful when people say things like that because it's hard for me to see and it's always good to reflect back on it and to count those things as successes. Yes, I ran for office. Yes, I lost. I still feel like it was something successful in my life. And I'm good with that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I'll run again. I will be prepared for either outcome and know that, you know, it will be a great experience no matter what. We can be our own worst critics. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, man, that is that's actually a great thing. Before I was... Making the decision to run for office, I was at this women's leadership conference and there was this, I ended up in this class about imposter syndrome. Oh yes. Which before then I had never heard of it, which is is crazy, but obviously I've been dealing with it my whole life. I'm type A and perfectionist. So I deal with it all the time. Like, oh, I'm not good enough to do that one thing. I don't have all those requirements to be this or to be that. But for some reason, I'm also um, just a little, I wear rose-colored glasses just enough to say, well, maybe I'll still go for it anyway. But it was just refreshing to hear that everybody deals with that, that I'm not the only one. (laughs) And it's refreshing to see people that I think of as super successful that also deal with it. I mean, that was kind of like this light bulb that went off like, oh, we all have self-doubt. Oh, we're all alike. Look at that. It's kind of amazing. So once you kind of put that to the side and put us all on equal footing, 
I think it's it's really important to realize that every single person that you see has something that they're struggling with and dealing with. And so we're all human, right? I mean, musicians in particular, already I knew that about <laughs> musicians. But I think when we see like su- successful politicians or successful business people, it's important to realize like they're human too. They deal with the same things and they also doubt themselves in the same way. But they just don't let their doubts take over. That's right. And <clears throat> you mentioned the imposter syndrome. There's a book that I've read and, and mentioned before on, on a podcast. It's by Gay Hendricks. And it's called The Big Leap. And he talks about the imposter syndrome in there. And my interpretation of life as we live it today is with social media, it makes everybody seem as though that nobody has self-doubt. Absolutely. That everything is just perfect out there. Oh, you can put a filter on anything. Yeah. And (laughs) and it's not true. And when we all can accept that we have it, It'll make us stronger because Mm -hmm. you acknowledge it and you move on. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so easy with social media to live in this little box that we put ourselves into. And maybe you feel like you're connected because you're talking to people sort of via social media. But it's in no way rewarding. I've never found it to be rewarding. Um, I've always found it as something that I just had to do for music or for whatever I was doing. And that's why when I was running for office, I wanted to actually interact with people one-on-one as much as possible because those are the things that make life real and make it worth doing all these things that we do, making all these hard choices and moving forward. I think it's important to learn to put social media to the side sometimes. I, I think you and I are very similar in many ways. And listening to your um, youth growing up with in household with single mom, mm-hmm. I had single mom, and she was raising us kids and working two jobs and being in Brookhaven, Mississippi. And I was very close with my grandparents as well, who uh, were Depression era. Mm-hmm. And talk about working hard, and but life was about having conversations and speaking up. And I remember at my mom's funeral, one of my sister's friends came over and said, the thing that we loved most about your mom, as challenging as she could be, which my mom had her challenges, that she always told you the truth. And as teenagers, she never held anything back. Mm-hmm. And for for me, I hope, I will, I will do the same. Not that I hope. I know I'll do the same for, for my kids. And uh, it, you just hope that we can bring back some of that conversation mm-hmm. in yes. face-to-face, one-on-one, and not having conversation while your face is buried in a phone because you're <laughs> texting or looking at something or you're getting dinged with the newest um, headline. Um, mm-hmm. It's that one-on-one and looking people in the eye that really connects and That's brings true. people together. That's true. I mean, if you only listen to the news, gosh, I know we're dealing with a lot right now in this age and this era, but um, it's not all bad. So it's really important to connect with your own community and look for those things that are sort of amazing that aren't being covered in the news. So making those connections is really important. It was 
in my campaign, I met a lot of people that were, that I sort of knew on the peripheral, but that were doing some really great work, especially with health and human services and those organizations. And those have always been important to me, but um, just watching their interactions and their devotion to their work that I realized, you know, we have something really special here. And I think a lot of communities have that, but you have to sometimes go dig for it because a lot of those people that are doing really great work are also ultra humble. And I think that that is, you know, very, um, I would love everyone to be more like that because it's hard to find those people. It's hard to bring them out. They don't want to be seen. They don't want people to know about them, but they're doing really important things. That's right. That's so right. So Cedar, you've touched on so many fantastic points in this conversation and I appreciate it. Well, thank you. You've asked some really great questions (laughs) as well. Um, Wow. Alabama complimenting Clemson and vice versa. (laughs) Sports enemies, but you can still get along. It's so, you know, what's funny. Um, I have not had the opportunity to go to any of the Alabama Clemson games in person, but Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of friends who have, and I have heard from them that Alabama fans are so gracious (laughs) and they've always gotten along really well with Clemson fans. And so I really admire that about keep it up. Okay. And, and likewise for Clemson fans. <laughs> so do you have a book or something that you've read recently which has inspired you or that you'd like to share with us? Sure. I talk about this author whenever I get the chance. Um, his name is Ivan Doig. He's originally from Montana. And I think um, he ended up in Washington State. But he's written... Gosh, probably 30 books. But the first one that I was introduced to was called This House of Sky. And it's a biography about his time growing up in Montana. His family was were sheep farmers. And it's just a really, I don't know, it's a very, me saying things like be true to yourself. It's a very genuine experience, the book. And he talks about the West in a way that we're all familiar with, that we understand. It's these stories of grit and determination and never giving up when things are really stacked against you because living out here we all know it takes a lot of guts it takes you know a lot of that and all of his stories are pretty impeccable in that way and they paint these really great landscapes and pictures um and a lot of his stories take place in the late 19th century 20th century and i actually had a chance to meet him came to Jackson for a book signing a few years. He's since passed away. And I thought it was pretty amazing. And I was in line and I had three books and I look around me and it's, I was the youngest person there by a lot. (laughs) And I think I surprised him when I came up to ask for, you know, an autograph and said, oh, I love all of your books. I've read 20 of them. And um, so, yeah, I'm always trying to introduce, especially younger readers to him, because I think it's just a really vivid experience. Well, I, I love the Western life what it brings and the culture and and the challenge and grit, as you have said, the grit and determination that it takes to live in the West, especially in the rural West mm-hmm. where we are. And we have phenomenal, you know, resources in this community, but we're still rural. Right. And to I, I look forward to reading um, some of his books. And the one you mentioned is The House of Sky. This House of Sky. This House of Sky. Mm-hmm. This House of Sky. Awesome. So Cedar if people wanted to connect with you and get some inspiration from you, what is the best way for them to reach out? 
Email would be great. They can reach me at cedarrose at gmail.com and it's S-E-A-D-A-R-R-O-S-E at gmail. Um, I'm happy to chat with anyone. I, if I can be an inspiration, great. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I'm always, um, I'm, I always love having conversations. I think we can all inspire somebody. And it's not age-driven to be able to inspire folks. It's the message that we carry. Absolutely. Yeah. Cedar, I so appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to come and sit down and visit with me today. Thank you, This has been spectacular. Yeah, it's been really fun. You're welcome. It's awesome. It's good. And thank you for creating this podcast and giving back to your community as well. Indeed. Have a great day. You too. The Liquor Store of Jackson Hole, locally owned and operated in Jackson Hole, Wyoming since 1985. Need help picking out wine for a date? No problem. The experienced team of TLS can help you and make you look like a master of wine and you take the credit. Want to know how to concoct the perfect scotch on the rocks? The TLS team can help and your taste buds will love you for it. Stop in and visit the friendly, awesome staff of the liquor store. Let us entertain you. Albertsons is next to us. The liquor store of Jackson Hole, located at 115 Buffalo Way, Jackson, Wyoming. Or you can visit us at tlsofjh.com. One more episode is complete, and I say farewell until next time. You rock for tuning in each week and sharing this podcast with your friends. Listeners such as yourself, keep me driven to continue searching out new guests to interview. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you would like to be a guest or know of someone connected to Jackson Hole whom I should interview, send me a note via email, connect at thejacksonholeconnection.com. Or you can connect with us via Facebook page, facebook.com slash Jackson Hole Connection. Please subscribe, rate, and review the Jackson Hole Connection on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Five stars, of course, because I really like five stars. The Jackson Hole Connection is all about sharing, caring stories of worldly, wildly folks with a desire to share the fun side of life. This is Stephan Abrams, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this podcast. Thank you to my wife for her support. Thank you to Michael Morey for editing and directing me. Thank you to Luke Taylor for the rad music. And thank you to Tana Hoffman for spreading the word each week. Y'all come back again now, you hear?